to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Zenny Swart and um, today I just want to share a bit from John chapter 19 and 20 about going beyond the grave. And there's a, a very well-known saying that I mentioned on, on, the, uh, on the DVDs, on the videos this week, that uh, there are only two things in life that are certain, and death and taxes, and uh, that we don't like either of the two. <laughs> we don't like either of the two. And the reality is death is a, death is a, is a, is a disturbing and a very uncomfortable topic for us to talk about. Especially when we consider that the mortality rate is still 100%. Still 100%. And, and, and the reality is it scares us a bit. It's not nice for us to talk about it. But then it is also encouraging to be able to talk about it in light of Jesus and, and His death on the cross. But also what happened after that. That because of Jesus' death, need not be the end. And, and, and the reality is um, we are, all have our hopes and dreams, but, but there's this, this one, what seems to be a dead-end street, excuse the pun, um, a cul-de-sac, a dead end that we all seem to be heading towards. And, and the question is, can you make a comeback from death? Can your hopes actually survive beyond the grave? And that's what we're going to be, be speaking about this, this morning. And uh, I just want to start by reading to you from um, John chapter 19 from verse 31 to 36. And it says, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, that's the bodies of Jesus and the two thieves who were crucified either side of him, because they didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. And the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. <coughs> and... Uh, as I said, I want to speak a bit about the death of Jesus. And, and I just have um, six points that I want to make. Firstly, Jesus' death was predicted. Quite surprising when you think about that. It was vicarious. Now, that's a big word, but it just means in our place. He didn't really die for anything he did wrong because he didn't do anything wrong. He died for others. Um, his death was cruel was a very cruel death and, and that tells us something very important um, about it. It was also liberating. Um, 
it leads to a new exodus. It was certain. There's no doubt about it that he actually died. And we're going to see that in the text as well. And then the last one is, it was, his death was temporary. His death actually didn't last. So let's, let's, let's look at that um, for a while. Firstly, um, I just want to start off by, you know, I, I was, as I was preparing, I was thinking about the story of a friend of mine that he told me a couple of months ago, and I actually phoned him last night again, just uh, said, just, just tell me your story again, just tell me some of the details again, because it's such a powerful story, and especially in the light of what Celine was sharing now, because his story was very similar to that of Celine. And he was a young man, he was already in primary school, and he said in primary school he was one of the um, most popular guys in the school. One of the most, he was, he, was, he, he was like one of the most popular guys. His friend actually, his very best friend, his bosom buddy, was the most popular guy in school. I mean, we know in primary school and even in high school, you, you get that guy, you get that girl who's like, Everyone wants to be friends with them. They're the most popular. They're the coolest. They're the most handsome or the most beautiful or the most whatever. And, and they, everyone just knows they are the most popular. No, his, his best buddy for, of many years was this guy. And, and, and because of that guy's popularity, he was also very popular um, and very successful and so on. And um, he said then something happened and they had a fallout, him and his best buddy. They had a fallout something went wrong and and this friendship of many years actually fell apart just suddenly completely fell apart and what happened was all the other guys in the in crowd went with this guy and they didn't want to hang out with him anymore they didn't want anything to do with him anymore and he went overnight from being one of the most popular guys in school to being a total outcast they didn't even want to play touches with him or spend time with him or be seen around him. They just openly and continuously rejected him. And, and, and it, it devastated him. So much so that he fell into a deep depression. Because he, he didn't feel like he had any identity or any you know, reason to live apart from this. Because his whole identity was built on, I'm popular, I'm part of the in crowd, I'm the man. And when he lost that overnight and you know, obviously he tried to approach them again, but they just didn't want to know anything. They just totally rejected him. He fell into this deep, dark depression that lasted for months and, and, and just continued. So much so that he wanted to commit suicide. Very similar to, to what uh, Celine was sharing. He wanted to commit suicide. But he said he had a grandmother who actually stayed with him in the house who prayed for him. And he, know, he, he knew that she prayed for him because he heard her. She, she was one of those who believed you had to pray out loud to be heard. <laughs> so she'd always pray out loud. Not, not, very, not very loud, but I mean, she'd like whisper and, and he'd hear her you know, when he passed the room. or when he was, Sometimes when he was in the room, uh, you know, she would come into his room and actually pray for him when she thought he was sleeping. Every day, his grandmother would pray for him. And he says that the consequence of this, he actually got to the point where he actually tried to commit suicide a few times. But he said every time he, he was you know, in the process of committing suicide, God would speak to him. God would speak to him. And he'd hear God, and, 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 and God would somehow prevent him from committing suicide. So much so that he became angry with God. God, what are you doing? Every time I try to kill myself to end my suffering, you come and speak to me. And you stop me. 
And he was actually angry at God for doing this. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me how often we can come to the place where we see death as the only way out, the only solution. And it's almost as if God, in a stroke of brilliant, divine irony, did make death the only way out. Only it wasn't our death. It wasn't our death. We see here Jesus on the cross. And we see that his death on the cross, firstly it was predicted. Now, it was predicted in a few ways. Um, this, this, this passage that we read now is full of references to Exodus chapter 12. And those of you who maybe have time at home, go and read Exodus chapter 12. Uh, it's all about the Exodus. Remember, Israel were, were, as a nation were enslaved, were enslaved for, what was it, 400 years in Egypt. They grew up as slaves, oppressed by Pharaoh and, and the Egyptian government, um, forced to do hard manual labor with this terrible yoke upon them. And I mean, we can relate to that. I mean, we might not be physical slaves, but, but many of us experience enslaving habits, enslaving behavior in our lives, things that we cannot break free from, things that are like a heavy yoke upon our necks that suppress, oppress us and, 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 and bring us down. So we can relate to that. And um, then Mo- God sends Moses, and we know the story of um, you know, about the ten plagues and how the ten plagues come. And the final plague is the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn. Now remember Jesus is referred to also as the firstborn. And then on that night, the Passover lamb is sacrificed. And God says to to the Israelites, sacrifice a Passover lamb. Take the blood, paint it on the doorposts of your houses. And the death angel will pass your house by, will pass over your house. And it says that night in every single house in the entire land of Egypt, which was the superpower of the time, there was death amongst humans and animals except on the houses where the blood was painted on the lintels of the house. And then right after that, the very next day, the exodus starts. And Israel, something happens that has never happened before or after. A nation, an entire nation that had been enslaved, does an exodus, leaves the land, and goes to a new land. That has never happened before or since. Not in that way. And um, what we see is that both the firstborn and the lamb are a picture, a prophetic type of Jesus. In John chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist says, now this is a different John from the one who wrote the, the actual gospel. He says, he's walking with two of his disciples and he says, behold the lamb of God. In other words, he's the true Passover lamb. And these guys say, we're with him. <laughs> if he's that guy, we're with him. And they start following Jesus. And it shows us that that Passover lamb, and remember Passover was celebrated then every year after that by the Israelites as a, as a commemoration of this lamb. And they, every year they slaughtered the lamb as a commemoration that this lamb died in their place. Now, now here's the thing I want you to think about. Here's the thing I want you to think about. Firstly, 
God comes and he has to, as a holy God, he has to bring judgment on sin. So he has to bring judgment on the Egyptians. But that means he also actually has to bring judgment on the Israelites because they know better than the Egyptians. Just because the, the Israelites are being oppressed and the Egyptians are the oppressors doesn't mean that the Israelites are better. I mean, and we see that. When they go out, they go out with a lot of complaining. It's as though God has to drag them kicking and screaming to the promised land. Right? They're stubborn, you know? They're not, they're not much more submissive to God than the Egyptians. So if God were completely just, the Israelites would have to die as well. And the only reason they don't is because this lamb is sacrificed in their place and the blood is painted on the doorpost. But even with the Egyptians who do receive God's judgment, his judgment is merciful. How many, what percentage of the Egyptians do you think were sinful and could deserve God's judgment? 100%, right? How many of the Egyptians actually died? Did 100% die? Only the firstborn. So even with them, God allowed a representative. The firstborn is representing the, the family and the nation. But that, both of those, the firstborn and the lamb, are prophetic types pointing towards the ultimate one who would die. The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb. But not only that, it's not only the prophetic types, there are actual prophetic oracles. Now, I don't want to take you, I mean, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of them in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus came. I just want to mention two. One is in Psalm 22. Now, David, the great warrior king of Israel, the great shepherd king, he was a shepherd boy before he became king, and he was a musician. He played the harp and he wrote songs. Okay, it's, it's almost hard to, to, to conceive of, of, of this mighty warrior who slays giants on the one hand and conquers you know, armies, also being a sort of creative you know, musician you know, and poet. You, know, you don't sort of expect those two to go together, but with David it did. Um, he was this amazing creative guy. So he wrote Psalm 22, and in it he writes, you know, the dogs have surrounded me. And then he says, they've pierced my hands and my feet. They mock me. They say, he trusted in God. Will God save him? And that's exactly what happened. That was written a thousand years before Christ. At 1000 BC. A thousand years is a long time. And it was written, hear this, before the execution method of crucifixion was even invented, it says, they pierced my hands and my feet. A thousand before Christ. David prophetically saw this coming and in one of his prophetic songs he wrote this. Then a few hundred years later in about 700 odd before Christ a guy called Isaiah writes in a prophetic oracle in Isaiah 53. You can go and read it for yourself if you want to. And it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace came upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And he tells and a lot more that he, that he says about this individual called the suffering servant who dies on behalf of the nation and who's pierced, who's wounded, who's bruised, who's battered, but not for anything that he had done. 
So accurate is this prophecy about 700 years before Christ that Orthodox, many Orthodox Jews today take it out of the Old Testament because it just too clearly points to Jesus and they, and they, they don't like it. <laughs> and, and you know, that it's so accurate that some skeptics say, no, this, this couldn't possibly have been written 700 before Jesus. It's, it's, not, it's just too... It's uncanny how accurate it describes the life and death of Jesus. It must have been written after the fact, after Jesus' death on the cross. The problem with that is we have the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was written between 250 and 150 before Christ. So we know the entire uh, Old Testament, including Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, was tr- not only existed before Jesus, but was translated into a different language hundreds of years before Jesus came onto the scene. The evidence is undeniable. And it's so strong, it freaks people out. People who are skeptic, it freaks them out. They look at it and it, no, it, it, this can't be. This just cannot be. And, and, and it, here's the impact it has on me. You know, If I have to tr- compare Jesus as the founder of Christianity with the founder of different religions, let's take, let's take Islam, Muhammad, as the founder of Islam. Muhammad came into the world completely unannounced. Completely unannounced. There wasn't one prediction, one prophecy about him anywhere. Ever. And here for hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus came, there are these prophecies about him. There are these predictions that one is going to come and that he's going to die. A very painful death. A very brutal death. And Jesus fulfills this to the letter. I mean, it even says in Psalm 22, they, they cast lots for my clothes and, and for my garments. And it happens exactly like that. The four soldiers who are overseeing the crucifixion, when they get to his, his undergarment, which is in one piece, they say, let's not tear this up. It's too, it's too valuable. Let's rather cast lots to see who gets it. And it happens like that exactly to the letter. So Jesus' Jesus's death is predicted. But, but also, as we see, it's vicarious. It's not for anything he had done. It's on it's, it's for the sake of others. Just like the lamb, the Passover lamb, wasn't slaughtered as a sacrifice for anything it had done. So also Jesus, as the lamb of God, according to John the Baptist, his blood was shed, not for anything he had done, but for us and what we had done. That's what the whole thing about the Passover lamb was all about. It was... That God in His grace said that He set up the whole sacrificial system in Israel, in fact, to show us that one can die on behalf of, of, of another. The, the sentence that we deserved could be transferred to another. The sentence that we all deserve could be transferred to another. The whole sacrificial system was that. And, and, and we know like the Israelites that we stand guilty before God. I mean, is there one of us, even if you just think about the Ten Commandments, you know, the, the, the more well-known commandments, you know, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only will you serve. Who of us have always worshipped the Lord our God in everything? You shall not lie. Who of us have always told the truth and never lied? You shall not steal. Honor your father and your mother. I mean, I know of no child that always honors their father and mother. I haven't. You shall not covet. You shall not desire what belongs to another. I don't know of anyone who has, 
hasn't broken that commandment. We all stand guilty before God. But the good news is, the good news is, even though our guilt deserves a very severe punishment, God in His grace says, I'm making a plan so that you do not have to receive that punishment. So that, that punishment can be transferred to another. So, so we see um, that... Jesus died the death we should have died. (coughs) The death we deserve to die after having lived the life that we should have lived. You see, He lived the life we should have lived which was in complete obedience to the commands of God. He was the one, the one person, the only person who didn't deserve to die. And after living the life we should have lived, But didn't, he died the death we should have died in our place. In our place. So, Jesus' death was predicted, it was vicarious, but it was also very cruel. It was was an exceedingly cruel death. That's why the Romans loved crucifixion. And crucifixion was reserved for the worst kind of criminal. Some murderers, if if it was bad enough, would be crucified. Insurrectionists, people who rebelled against the Roman, Roman government, they were crucified. No Roman citizen could be crucified. It's interesting, if you look at the lives of Peter and Paul, the two, two of the great apostles of the early church, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Why was Paul not crucified? He was a Roman citizen. <coughs> And the Romans considered death by crucifixion to be so cruel that they weren't willing to do it to their own. But they were willing to do it to everyone else. (laughs) Don't think they were very nice because they weren't willing to do it to their own. They were willing to do it to everyone else. And it wasn't uncommon when they went in, the Roman army went in, to suppress a rebellion in a city to afterwards find thousands of people crucified next to the roads. In the process of dying, over sometimes a few days, you hung there for a few days before you died. And the reason we see this excruciating pain with which people died by the fact that they came and they broke the legs of the other two guys crucified next to Jesus. Because they literally, the nails were driven through your hands and your feet and you hung there on your own body weight on these nails. It, it, sorry, sorry for being so graphic, please forgive me, but I, I do think... We need to think about this in order to see something very important. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. And, and then when you, I mean, you got tired. I mean, if you hung there for hours and days even, your, your body got tired, you know. And try, try, you know, pulling your arms back like this and breathing. You'll feel it's very hard to breathe. So eventually, in order to breathe, you have to pull yourself up by your own body weight, by these nails, and push yourself up by your f- feet, that would, by these nails in your feet. And every time you pushed and pulled yourself up, you could breathe and you had to let go to breathe again. And every time it was excruciating pain, because I mean the, the nerves in your hands and, and your fingertips, which are the, some of the, the densest nerves in your body, go through your, your hands and your arms. And you, you had to pull yourself up by that to breathe. It was the word excruciating, as in its heart, the word crux, which comes from the Latin word for cross. Excruciating. The very word excruciating comes from the Latin word for cross. Because it was the most excruciating way to die. Now here's what I want you to think about. 
if this Jesus, this innocent, perfect man who deserved, who didn't deserve to die, was willing to die in your place, but not only to die in your place, but to die that death in your place. To suffer that much for you so that you would not have to suffer. How much do you think he loves you? Here's the thing. Jesus, a few times during the Gospels, predicts his death by crucifixion. He knew what they were going to do to him. He knew what he was going to suffer. And he knew that he was going to have to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, in my opinion, the physical suffering of Jesus pales in comparison to when he hung there and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think about this for a moment. That story I told you about this, this young man who was rejected by his friends. His, his, his best friend of many years. It hurt him so much that he, that he was so devastated and so depressed by it that he wanted to commit suicide. That's how much it hurt. And that's only a friend, a, a, a guy in primary school with, towards his, his friend of a couple of years. His best friend, granted, but, but only of a couple of years rejecting him. How much more if a child rejects you? How much more painful would that be? Your own child that you maybe gave birth to rejecting you. Or how much more if a parent rejects you after raising you for 20 years? How much more if a spouse whom you desperately, intimately love after many years of marriage says, I'm not interested in you anymore and rejects you? Here's the thing. The hurt that you experience because of that rejection is directly proportional, directly proportional to the intimacy of the relationship that is broken. The relationship that you experienced before that rejection. The intimacy, the quality and the quantity of that relationship. Here's the thing. Think about this for a moment. Jesus, the Son and Father God, had perfect, the most intimate relationship for eternity in the past. Think how strong that relationship is. Think how intimate that relationship is. Think how intense that relationship is. We know nothing like it. We've never experienced anything that even remotely comes close to it. Even the most intimate marriage pales in comparison to the relationship that God the Father had with God the Son. And in the context of that intimacy, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Imagine the torment. Imagine how painful that tearing away must have been. I mean, we cannot actually imagine. We cannot. He was willing to suffer that for you. How much do you think He loves you? How much do you think He loves you? Think about this. You were so guilty that Jesus had to die for you. But you were so loved that he was glad to die for you. His death was predicted. It was vicarious. It was cruel. But it was also liberating. Remember what happened just after the, ex- the, 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 the first sacrifice of the Passover lamb when they painted the, door po- the, the blood on the doorposts? The very next day they started the exodus. They started the journey from being under slave captivity to slavery into freedom. From being oppressed in Egypt to being free in the promised land. 
the Exodus. Now, Jesus' death as the ultimate Passover lamb, just like the original Passover, the death of the original Passover lamb led to the Exodus, so Jesus' death on the cross led to the new Exodus. We are just like the Israelites. We also have an oppressor. Where they had Pharaoh oppressing them, we have Satan oppressing us. Where they were enslaved and crushed under the works that they had to do for the Egyptians, we are enslaved to our sins and we cannot be freed from it ourselves. Many of us have tried. But the death of the Passover lamb starts a new exodus in which we exodus the world and enter the kingdom, the promised land, where we come out from the oppressive rule of Satan and come into the liberating rule of Jesus, the king, the ultimate king, the good king. It's a liberate. Jesus' death was liberating. It is liberating to us. But not only is it liberating, it's certain. It's certain. I mean, so many eyewitnesses. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul the Apostle mentions at one stage, he mentions different people at different times, but at one stage he mentions more than 500 eyewitnesses who, who were still al- alive at the time when he was writing it. Who testify to the resurrection of Jesus. So that skeptics, you know, try and figure this out. You know, surely, you know, so many people testifying on so many, having seen him on so many different occasions, and not just one at, at, at a time, but dozens and sometimes even hundreds at a time, seeing him at the same time. You know, it makes it very difficult to deny it. So they cannot deny the testimony. So they say, well, then Jesus might, must not have really been dead. Maybe he was just unconscious. Now think about this. Jesus was flogged. 40 minus 1 you know, beatings with, with a cat of nine tails, which was a whip which has multiple tails and little pieces of bone and metal worked into it. So that when you were whipped with it, it ripped pieces of skin and flesh off you. And you bled profusely. After suffering that, he had carried his cross and then was nailed to the cross and hung there for hours. And then he died. And the soldier comes. Now, now consider this. These soldiers had to carry out the sentence. And there was a law in the Greco-Roman, in the Roman legal system, that any prisoner or um, convict, any sentence passed that you had to carry out, whether it was imprisonment or execution, if you did not carry it out properly, if a prisoner escaped or execution was botched, then whatever that, that sentence was came upon you. So the, these soldiers had done many crucifixions. They, they were experts. They knew how to do a crucifixion. And their lives depended on doing it right. If they botched this execution, they would be executed in that way. They would be crucified. Guess what? They had some motivation to do it right. And that's why when they realized he was dead, he was no longer breathing. They checked. They could see he was no longer pulling himself up by his arms and his legs. He he wasn't breathing anymore. They said, let's make double sure." And they took a spear and they stuck it into his side. And blood and water flowed. Why did blood and water flow? Because his heart had already stopped a long time ago. His heart was not beating and and, and the blood was no longer circulating. And and the, the red blood cells and stuff were settling out. So it looked like blood and water which was coming out. He'd been dead for a long time. Medically dead. His death was certain. He was surely dead. And, you know, if, 
you know, even if that were not true, you know, take a person in that state who had been flogged until, you know, most, he'd lost most of his blood and then a spear had been stuck into his side and put them in a tomb for three days and three nights. Can, can, you, can you imagine that someone who was unconscious would, and, and in that state would possibly survive that? Not a chance. Not a chance. Jesus' death was certain. He was most definitely dead. The soldiers had made sure about that. Their lives depended on it. But that's not the end of the story. We read in John 20, verse 1 to 9, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And then verse 5 goes on. And he bent over looked and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside and saw and believed. He saw and believed. And then verse 9 says, They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So not only is Jesus' death predicted, vicarious in our place, cruel, yet liberating, and certain, but it's also temporary. He actually rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. Now, con- why you consider that? Consider this. Consider this. I think the eyewitness testimonies are very credible. Number one, when you look at Mary... You know, she, she, she comes there. She comes there. And, 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 and we often think, oh, you know, um, people in those days, they were quite superstitious. They, they easily believed in supernatural stuff. When they didn't understand something, they were quick to ascribe a supernatural cause to it. Her first reaction is, they've taken the body. Someone stole the body, and we don't know where it is. They've taken the body. She tries to find a plausible natural explanation. Secondly, she says, we don't know where they've put it. Notice, it's an eyewitness testimony. There were other women as well. Now, John doesn't have space in his gospel because you had a scroll which was a certain length. So you, so you had to pick and choose what you wanted to put in. He didn't have space in his, in his scroll to put in all the detail and, and mention all the other women. But when he gives the eyewitness testimony, he gives the exact words. He doesn't say, Mary said, I don't know where they've put him. She uses the plural because that's what the women who came back with Mary, even though they're not mentioned in his, in his actual eyewitness testimony. He records the actual words. He says, we don't know where they put it. This is eyewitness testimony, people. You won't put that in. You won't put that little detail in if it were not eyewitness testimony. How many eyewitnesses do you need to confirm something as a fact? One. In a court of law, you need one eyewitness. Mary is one of those eyewitnesses. Now, it's interesting to, um, 
to many of the Greco-Romans of the time, this testimony of Mary wasn't very credible, not very convincing, because it was a very patriarchal society, quite sexist. The, 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 Roman, the Greco-Roman pagans were, were quite sexist. They didn't, you know, women were literally treated as property in those days. Seriously, that's how bad it was. A woman's testimony counted very little, you know. Um, one man had a testimony that, that counted more in a court of law than, than a few women. In fact, there are some places, many places in fact, where women couldn't even testify in court. And one of the guys um, in the early church, one of the opponents of the early church, uh, um, a Roman pagan, says, we can't believe this testimony. It's a testimony of a woman. We know how hysterical and emotional women are. Surely we can't, surely we can't believe this testimony. And what was a weakness in their sexist times to the testimonies for us a strength because firstly we know that women are as competent to testify as men are as intelligent um, as men are but more than that we know that if this were made up if the apostles later made up the resurrection accounts and and tried to convince people who didn't believe in resurrection of it they never would have invented women as the first eyewitnesses I mean, if you're making up a story, you're going to make up a better story than that. A story that would be more easy for your culture to believe. You would have invented, you know, really credible leaders, men who were leaders of, um, you know, real, who were really respected leaders in the community. You, you would have invented them as the first eyewitnesses, not women. And, and even the most skeptical historians agree that the only way that the story of women being the first eyewitnesses would end up in the gospel is if it were actually true. If it were actually true. But not only that, notice this. I mean, they're running to the tomb. And, and the guy writing the gospel, the, called the beloved disciple, he, he just wants us to know he outran Peter. He outran the old man. He got there first. In fact, he tells it to us twice. That's how much he wants to, you know. After Peter came there, after him, you know, because he was behind because he outran him in this tomb race. He won, and you can see the competition. I mean, it's childish, right? It's childish. But you can see it in, in, in chapter twenty-one as well. You know, when when Jesus, after he's resurrected, comes, and 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 we heard about that story last week about Peter's restoration. You know, where Jesus says to him, do you love me more than these? Feed my lambs, etc. You know what Jesus says? He tells him, you know, he says, one day, when you were young, you, you, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go. But when you are old, you, you, someone else will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And, and uh, you know, you'll be, you, that's the way you'll die. And you can see that even there, when Jesus t- talks about his, Peter's death and, and, and how he will, will glorify, with what kind of death he will glorify Jesus, Peter's competition with this beloved, beloved disciple comes out and he looks back and he sees this disciple and says, what about him? How's he going to die? <laughs> so you can see this competition coming out. Now, here's the thing. Think about this. I mean, would the gospel writers record something so childish and which makes them look bad if it were not true. It's a bit embarrassing. The only reason they would record it if it were actually true. Can you see that this is authentic, credible eyewitness testimony? And it's testimony of the fact that Jesus rose again. But not only did he rise again, 
There's an interesting way that it says when they came into the tomb, they found the linen. The linen cloth wrapped around his body and the grave cloth that was wrapped around his head. Now, it's not the first time in John's gospel that those words are mentioned. It's mentioned before then, in John chapter 11, with Lazarus being raised from the dead. Exactly those same words. It says, Jesus wept and then he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes bouncing out, you know, wrapped in these grave linen grave cloths with this grave cloth, you know, these linen strips with a grave cloth around his head. And what does Jesus say? He says to the people standing by, take those linen cloths off, loose him and set him free. And the reason why they mention those grave cloths, the linen wrapped around his body and the grave cloth that was on his head folded up and put aside, is because he's trying to, very subtly, but very powerfully, draw a contrast with the resurrection of Lazarus. You see, Lazarus was resurrected, but he died again. We always think, oh, Lazarus is so lucky to be resurrected. He got to die twice. <laughs> I prefer just to die once. Thank you very much. <laughs> he was ill. and We don't know what that illness was, but he died of it. Jesus comes four days later when his body is already decomposing. He resurrects him. But who knows how long Lazarus lived after that months, years, who knows. But he died again. The difference is Jesus didn't die again he died once he was resurrected but he was resurrected into eternal life and we too can experience that resurrection not just a resuscitation from which we will die again but a resurrection a a resurrection into eternal life so that we will never die again or like Jesus said before he raised Lazarus from the dead to, to, to Mary and Martha I am the resurrection and the life whoever believes in me will never die again it's interesting, um, both in John 20 and, and 19, it refers to believing. John 20 verse 8 says, Finally the disciple who had reached the tomb first, he just wants to remind us, he got there first, he won the race, also went inside, he saw and believed. Notice that they were skeptical. When, when they got the testimony of the women, they didn't believe it. They only believed once they saw for themselves. But he saw and believed. And in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 35, it says, The man who saw it <clears throat> has given testimony, and his testimony is true. And he knows he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. So that you also may believe, based on his eyewitness testimony. He's initially skeptical, but eventually after he had seen eyewitness testimony and faith. You too can believe. And don't you think that this kind of testimony, eyewitness testimony, of people who were initially skeptical about the resurrection, who tried to find natural explanations for it, but eventually the the evidence was just too overwhelming and Jesus time and again appeared to them so that they had to admit he actually did rise from there. And think about this. They were so convinced of his resurrection that they were willing to die for that testimony themselves oftentimes being crucified and tortured to death. And, and, and the torturers would say to them, all you have to do is, say, is deny your testimony and say that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. And they said, we can't. Torture us to death if you have to. Inflict the most excruciating pain on us if you have to. But we cannot die, deny the truth that on the third day he rose again because we saw him. We met him. 
We know he rose. They, they, they were willing to die for the testimony that he rose again. That is a credible witness. So here's what I'm trying to tell you. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. The death of Jesus tells us how loved we are. It tells us we are loved. The resurrection of Jesus tells us we have hope. But all of that only applies to our lives if we actually believe. If we actually believe. And if you, if the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart this morning, stirring that kind of faith in your heart, and saying, I'm looking at this through new eyes, I'm seeing that this is not just some fanciful made-up story, this is credible eyewitness testimony, I'm actually starting to believe it. I've got good news for you. You are so loved. You, you are so guilty that Jesus had to die for you, but you are so loved that he was glad to die for you. But not only to die for you, but to rise again into eternal life so that you could experience eternal life, so that your hopes and your dreams, I mean, we have hopes and dreams that we couldn't possibly, longings that we couldn't, that couldn't, can't possibly fulfilled in, be fulfilled in this life. We were, if we find those hopes and dreams and longings that, that nothing in this life can fulfill, then surely we were created for a different life, for another life, for another world. And that's the world of the resurrection, the world of eternal life, into which Jesus has already entered as our pioneer and has opened the way for us. You know what? When... The disciples came to the empty tomb. When the women came to the empty tomb, the stone was rolled away. You know, Jesus was already not in the tomb. Do you realize that? The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let us in. It was rolled away to let us in. Into that resurrection reality that He opened. That portal into eternity. That he opened for us through his suffering, death, and resurrection. And if you believe in him, that, all of that, can be yours, will be yours.